Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. This is your girl Charlotte flying solo. You can call me Charlie, of course, because everybody on the team is currently in recovery from the Chalk Valley History Festival. So if you went to that and you had a wonderful time, I'm sure you can sympathise with how the team are all feeling today. Um, I hope I will see you there next year. But I'm dragging you back to the 17th century today because I've been left in charge and that's what I do. And I'm joined by a fantastic guest to talk about a very interesting man. Dominic Pierce studied classics at New College Oxford before being lured into a career in financial analysis. I mean, it does happen. All the while, he's undertaken historical and cultural research on the 17th century in particular, my kind of guy. He's the author of a biography of Queen Henrietta Maria, and he's here today to talk to me about his new book, The King's Only Champion, which is a biography of James Graham, the first Marquess of Montrose. Hello, Dominic. Hi, Charlie. Hi. Thank you so much for coming and joining me today to talk about someone who we don't talk about nearly enough. Yes, he's very interesting, Montrose, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the story of his life is described here as a story of chivalry and vanity, loyalty and betrayal. So immediately, we're completely hooked. But this isn't a man that many people know about. So who was James Graham and where do we begin telling his story? Yes, so... James Graham, the, so the, intro, the historical interest of James Graham is that he was very much involved in the civil wars, so Charles I civil wars. Um, uh, he was um, a Scot, uh, and one of the reasons you don't hear that much about him is because he was not English. So I think one of the whole kind of fascinations of the story is what was going on in Scotland in this period. Uh, and I will at the outset say that what was going on in Scotland was almost more important than what was going on in England. Mm. Everything started in Scotland, and events in Scotland led to events in England. So that's not necessarily the impression you get from the, some of the things you read about it, but that's the, actually what really happened. So James, James Graham, the future Marquis of Montrose, was a Scottish aristocrat. Uh, he was born in 1612. Um, his father was the fourth Earl of Montrose. So at that stage, the family title was the Earl. They were Earls of Montrose. And the family name on that side, of course, was Graham. Uh, the Grahams were a very old established uh, noble family who had a long tradition of service 
loyal service to the kings of Scotland. His mother, Margaret, before she was married, was called Margaret Riven. So that's one of those funny pronunciations. She spelt Ruthven, R-U-T-H-V-E-N, but you say Riven. And she came, of course, also from a grand aristocratic rich family, uh, but from one which had a very different tradition. So the Rivens or the Gowries, because their title was Earl of Gowrie, um, had a tradition of challenging the King of Scots and trying to control him. And that's not a bad way of thinking of the starting point of Montrose, is that in his family history and in his bloodline, if you like, are two very contrasting ideas of how he might behave as an adult when he grows up and in due course becomes um, the Earl himself. He will, of course, become Earl of Montrose. In fact, becomes Marquis of Montrose, but we'll come on to that. Right. Well, I mean, it is it is one of those, it's such a misnomer, isn't it, to refer to refer to it as the English Civil War when really Scotland was like you say so much more important and so heavily involved um it can't can't just be referred to as as the English Civil War but you choose to open your book with a, a real potted history of Scotland its kings and its queen its reformation all leading into the moments that that the English audiences are perhaps a bit more familiar with um did you feel that these hundreds of years were necessary to contextualise a few years in the mid-17th century? Yes, I, I, I very much did feel that. Um, and the reason is this. Um, I felt, I mean, we'll come on and start talking, obviously, about Montrose himself. Um, he, ha he did have a very extraordinary and very striking and dramatic uh, uh, career. Um, but everything that Montrose did, he did. Uh, with his gifts, his, his charisma, with everything that he had to offer, he did in response to things that Charles I had done as King of Scots. So Charles I did a whole lot of things in Scotland, um, which were of enormous historic importance, which led to certain events, and those events led to Montrose doing what he did. Uh, but Charles I, of course, had the authority as King of Scots because of the history of, of his family and of where they had all come from. And actually, that's very distinctive. And the entire tradition in Scotland of having a king uh, and of kingship in Scotland is very different, quite surprisingly, perhaps, from that in England. So I thought it was very important that people could understand where the whole thing came from. And actually, it's a great story uh, in its own right as well, but it does set the scene. And I think you understand much better a lot of things which happen in the 1630s and 1640s if you're aware of this past, which, by the way, everybody believed. Everybody believed this not entirely true uh, historical background was true. The king believed it. Montrose believed it. Everybody believed it. So I think it was important to set the scene as well as being interesting in its own right. The Scotland is, I mean, it's older than England. Um, Scotland uh, is uh, actually older than England. Uh, so when I say that, I, 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 say, I think of the work done by modern historians who with great care uh, gone into what evidence there is of how these kingdoms developed and so forth. Uh, and... Yes, uh, there was an independent, quite small initially, but uh, but a small area of what is now Scotland, which expanded into the historic Scotland um, 
you know, well before the Norman conquest of England uh, and and before the uh, the Saxon um, uh, uh, England emerged, which was relatively late. Um, um, but the Scots actually believed it went uh, back much further than that. What the Scots believed, and they really truly did all believe it, that the first king of Scots was a man called Fergus I, who lived 300 years before the birth of Christ. So there was this extraordinary national myth of enormous antiquity, which actually made Scotland the oldest kingdom in Europe, if you believed it. So that helps you understand how they saw themselves. Wow. Can we, uh, this this is feeling like we, we have to, we have to come out of the 17th century for a moment. Um, can I sidestep and ask you then about the Declaration of our Arbroath? Is that, have I pronounced that right? You have to That's right, yeah. And that's no, called the Declaration of Arbroath. Yeah. <laughs> so, so this is signed... Um, it's it's in the support of Robert the Bruce in 1320, and it's very clear on the subject of Scottish independence. Now, what does it say, and could we still regard that as valid today? Okay, so the De- Declaration of Arbroath is is one of those um, historic documents. And again, if you think of England, we talk about the Magna Carta, for example. So it's a bit like the Magna Carta in terms of its historic importance uh, for Scotland. Um, And what the Declaration of Arbroath was, was a sort of, it was a declaration of political support for Robert the Bruce. So Robert the Bruce had become King Robert I of Scotland um, after a period of uh, unclarity and who should be king of Scotland. This is we're now in the early 14th century, so it's the medieval period, um, uh, because uh, of the, the old line of kings died out, uh, and then there were a number of heirs of whom Robert was one. Um, so what happened was that the Plantagenet English kings, so initially Edward I uh, and subsequently Edward III, not so much Edward II. Um, tried to subject Scotland to their authority. So this is the period called the Wars of Scottish Independence. Um, But the Scots, led uh, by, among other people, uh, Robert Bruce, um, fought back and, in fact, did maintain their independence. And the Declaration uh, of Arbroath was a statement by the barons uh, and the knights of Scotland that they supported uh, William the First, uh, sorry, sorry, Robert the First, who is Robert the Bruce, uh, as King of Scotland, but they supported him provisionally. They supported him, provided he did his job, and his job was to keep Scotland independent of England. This is absolutely explicit. It's a Latin text, of course. It actually is sent, by the way, the person who goes to is the Pope. They want the Pope to support them uh, in this statement because the Pope has a kind of authority over all kings. Um, and and in fact, uh, Robert I did continue to be uh, king uh, and he was the ancestor, in fact, in the female line of the Stuart kings, who, of course, you know, from whom our king now descends, as a matter of fact. Um, but, that's what it, but that's what it was. Um, so it, it's not... It, it, you, it has a validity today in, in one sense, is that you can see that uh, Scotland, the independence and the nationhood of Scotland were tremendously important right back uh, in the Middle Ages. 
That is also true, and this is why I put it into my book uh, very much in the 17th century. Uh, and of course, this has resonance today because we're very accustomed to the rather changing and quite interesting news flow about Scottish independence in the 21st century. So, so it has a it has a historic validity, I think, is the answer to your question. Amazing. Okay, well, let's let's go back where it's much safer. Um, <laughs> back to the 17th century, um, away from modern politics. Um, so, when Charles I comes to the throne, he doesn't immediately endear himself to Montrose or any of the Scots nobles, really. Uh, tell us about the act of revocation. Yes, this is very important. Um, the uh, What happens is uh, Charles I becomes king, his father dies, uh, in March of 1625. Um, uh, he is, of course, king of three kingdoms. He's king of England, of Scotland, and of Ireland. Um, in October of 1625, so that's slightly over six months uh, after he becomes king, he issues this uh, act called the Act of Revocation. And it's, this is to do purely with Scotland. Um, and what the Act of Revocation says uh, to the shock of hundreds of people uh, in, in Scotland is that the king has the right to revoke all gifts of land made in Scotland to anybody at all, all gifts of land made in Scotland since 1540. So the Act of Revocation is made in 1625, and Charles I seems to be reaching back 85 years to 1540 to, uh, to exercise a huge land grab. That's what it looks like. The problem with it is that 1540 is before the Scottish Reformation. So the Scottish Reformation takes place in 1560. Um, through the Scottish Reformation, in fact, also through other ways, but if you think of the, the Reformation, an enormous amount of the land which the Catholic Church previously owned in Scotland is transferred to other people. So it's a bit like what happened in England with the dissolution of the monasteries. It actually took a different form uh, in Scotland. But there have been really huge land transfers because, of course, the Catholic Church was a very, very big landlord. Um, so. The amount of land which, uh, according to the king, in the Act of Revocation is covered um, is enormous. And it all belongs to the already rich landowning classes. So, of course, it's the um, perhaps a few merchants may be involved, but it's largely lairds and lords who've got their hands on this land. Um, we know, for example, and this is one of the things uh, I say in my book, that the Graham family, so the family of Montrose, was threatened by the Act of Revocation because they had a large estate uh, at Braco um, uh, in uh, um, in uh, um, Perthington Ross, um, and that had originally been um, monastic land. Uh, so it looked as though the king was saying, "I'm going to take all this land back for myself," which, of course, sounds like the purest autocracy. Um, the reality was, in fact, rather different. What Charles I was trying to do was trying to find a way to put money into the Church of Scotland, the Kirk, to help educate ministers and to house them and to get the whole uh, Scottish religious system properly financed. But he didn't say that to begin with. 
And it took quite a long time for this to emerge. In the end, the act of revocation was settled in a perfectly amicable way. Uh, there weren't large repossessions, actually. Um, and where there were repossessions, the person who had owned the land was compensated adequately. But that took a very, very long time to, 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 uh, to take place. And the first uh, uh, impact of the act of revocation was a huge, huge shock. And of course, it was a shock to the people that the king would normally utterly rely on to support him. So it wasn't a very good start as King of Scots. Wow. And then when Charles is crowned King of Scots, Montrose doesn't show up. Why, why was that? And did Charles hold it against him? Yes, this is this is very interesting. So, so uh, Charles the First um, comes to Scotland for the first time in his reign in 1633. Uh, so he became king in 1625. Uh, the Scots have to wait eight years uh, before they have their coronation as king, as he has his coronation as king of Scots. Um, um, he becomes, by the way, crowned King of England within a year of, of becoming king. So that is a bit of a problem as well. He keeps the Scots waiting. Um, but he does come and he does get crowned. Uh, and of course, the king naturally assumes that all members of the nobility that can attend will attend. Uh, and particularly, he would expect that Montrose would uh, would come. Montrose was quite a young man, of course, at this stage, but he was old enough to turn up to the coronation. Montrose's father had been the president of the Royal Privy Council. His grandfather had been the Chancellor of Scotland and the Treasurer of Scotland. This was a very, very distinguished, uh, long-established noble family. And the head of it, the young Earl of Montrose, should most definitely have turned up. But he didn't. We know he didn't because we have a list of the people who came uh, and he is and next to his name, showing that he was expected, by the way, the fact that he's on the on the list um, is marked the fact that he wasn't there. So we know for a fact he didn't come. Um, I am certain that Charles I was extremely offended by this. Charles I, both in, in England and Scotland, put a special, rather mystical value on his relationship with the old nobility. Uh, so it was very important. You know, he didn't, let us be honest, he did not manage the situation either in England or Scotland very well at any stage in his reign. But nonetheless, for him, he felt he had a special relationship as king with the old noble families in all his kingdoms. So he certainly would have noticed, and in my opinion, and we can tell from his behaviour later, by the way, uh, we can tell that actually he was pretty offended by Montrose not turning up. But what had happened was this. Uh, Montrose, uh, at the time of the 1633 coronation, was actually in France. He was traveling abroad. Uh, he was actually at a military academy in Angers, near the Loire Valley in France. Um, but what he'd had to deal with was a really terrible family scandal. Um, and the scandal was this. It involved um, his sister. He had five sisters. Uh, and it involved one in particular. although. In reality, it involved three of them, because what happened was that the, at this time, in um, the early 1630s, two of the five sisters were married, uh, and the unmarried sisters stayed with the ones who were married. Uh, 
So his sister Lilias was married to a man called Sir John Colum of Luss, uh, who lived uh, in, on a vast estate on the shores of Loch Lomond. Um, and her two younger sisters, Catherine uh, and Beatrix, uh, stayed with her at Luss Castle. Uh, Sir John, the husband of Lilias, fell in love with Catherine, the unmarried younger sister, and uh, in 1631, Sir John and Catherine, uh, and a servant of St. John's, disappeared. They eloped, or Sir John abducted Catherine. The truth we do not know. What we do know is they did disappear, and we know that next year, the Solicitor General of Scotland, sorry, the Attorney General of Scotland, uh, launched a lawsuit against Sir John, uh, for incest, because his sister-in-law was considered to be like a sister, so he had seduced his sister, and for witchcraft, because he said the the uh, the allegation was he had used witchcraft to seduce the innocent young Lady Catherine. Uh, what really happened, we don't know. But what we do know is that Catherine completely disappears from history. So at some stage she dies. We don't know when. And this is Montrose's sister. Um, and Sir John, in fact, subsequently, about 10, 15 years later, does reappear, but but um, but without her. Um, so this is an immensely distressing and very public scandal. So the charges against Sir John are read out in public at the Mercat Cross. So the Mercat Cross means the Market Cross in Edinburgh. Everybody knows about the Graham disgrace. And... Uh, Montrose, the young Montrose, as the head of the family, of course, has a responsibility for all the other people in his family. So he, there is the question of what has happened to Catherine, which never becomes clear. There is the abandoned Lilias, uh, who, by the way, is almost certainly sitting uh, on the Luss estate managing it. That's, you know, women did all this work. No one ever talks about it much, but she was probably doing a very hard job of managing, abandoned, disgraced, and probably very distressed. And of course, the younger sister Beatrix, whose honor was also very important. This was a very difficult situation. And after handling it, he stays there. Um, he keeps an eye on everything. He does his best, but then he decides he's got to get away. Uh, and that's why he goes traveling for three years, in fact, or slightly more than three years. Um, and that's why he doesn't, in my opinion, he doesn't go to the coronation. Uh, he's in France. The postal service works perfectly well. He could quite easily have come back to attend the coronation, but he doesn't do it. And I think it's a kind of shame, is what I think it is. Wow. I mean, this this is pure Hollyoaks uh, storylines here. I don't... I'm big time, yes. <laughs> I don't blame him for, yeah, he's just hiding in France and just hoping that no one's talking about him, but they all are, let's face it. Well, they all are, and, and the problem also, uh, Charlie, was that uh, what Charles I liked was a very high moral tone at court. Um, so, you know, it was going to be a difficult conversation, you know, if he met the king, basically. Oh, dear. Wow. OK, well, I think we can we can all understand him wanting to uh, keep his distance. So shortly after his coronation, Charles decides to give Edinburgh a lovely present. Um, he raises its status to that of a diocese. Um, how does that go down in Edinburgh? Okay, so this looks like a great compliment from the king. So what he does, so he makes Edinburgh a diocese. In other words, he makes Edinburgh into a bishopric, uh, and he create and and, and he and, and so someone becomes the bishop of Edinburgh called 
William Forbes. I think he's called William. He's definitely called Forbes. Anyway, so there's a, a new bishop. It seems like an elevation in dignity uh, for the city um, and so forth. But that's not how it's viewed in Scotland at all. Uh, and in particular, it's not how it's viewed in Edinburgh. Uh, the problem is this. Bishops are controversial. So the way, and that's just having bishops at all, is a controversial thing. Um, so the way that the Church of Scotland, the Kirk, is structured is called Presbyterian. Uh, it's, of course, Protestant, but it takes a particular form. And the structure of a Presbyterian church is bottom-up. So the most important part of the Presbyterian church is the individual parish. Everything is run on the basis of the individual parish. Um, representatives from the parishes can meet uh, in regional synods, and there is a national body called the General Assembly. But again, that consists of representatives from the parish. Uh, in the Catholic Church, it works the exact opposite. So you begin with the Pope, who's the boss. Beneath the Pope are archbishops, bishops, then priests, and right at the bottom are the laity, the people. Uh, there is Bishops are a very important part of the way the disciplined Catholic Church works. And also, within the system of monarchy throughout Europe at this stage, they're generally very important to the sovereign power as well. And that's why James VI of Scotland, James I of England, the father of Charles, famously said, after he became king of England, no bishop, no king. He felt bishops were so important that if you lost your bishops, you lost your royal authority as well. So in the Church of Scotland, there's literally no place for bishops. It's just they don't feature as officers of that church. They're only royal officials. And they are controversial already and will become much more controversial as we go through the 1630s. But having an additional bishop, the Bishop of Edinburgh, is actually not something the Scots want at all. This is more imposition of royal authority. The other reason uh, this lovely gift is actually, you know, a bit of a poison chalice is, of course, the whole thing has to be financed. So the, the, the new bishop uh, of uh, Edinburgh has to have an income, which has to come from somewhere. Um, and uh, also uh, St. Giles. So St. Giles is the enormous church, well worth visiting, actually, um, it, in uh, right at the top of the Royal Mile near the castle in Edinburgh. St. Giles has to be reconfigured so it is a suitable church to be a cathedral, because if you have a bishop, you must have a cathedral. So, And then there's a whole story there about the costs of that. But the costs, of course, of doing that all have to come from the people of Edinburgh. So there's both a sort of a, a church structural problem with having another bishop. Uh, and then also they just have to pay more money for something they don't want at all. Gosh, I mean, uh, we are going to skip forward, but I'm going to heartily recommend to our listeners that they read your description of the, the prayer book riots and the bishop's wars in the King's Only Champion. If for nothing else, the incredible women who are at the front of the rioting and this line, Absolutely. guys, this, this is the bit that got me. Women were not meant to complain about royal policies or complain at all. They were not meant to throw furniture at churchmen and threaten bishops with dismemberment. <laughs> but they did. They did <laughs> exactly that. 
And I think if they'd been allowed to, they might have dismembered a few, but actually they didn't in fact they didn't go quite so far, but you know. Amazing. No, I just I think it it's such a, a brilliant bit. And and of course this all leads into the the civil war, the wars of the three kingdoms, the wars of the five peoples as we know them. So we are gonna jump forward. Um how is it that Montrose, who is too embarrassed to go to the King's coronation, um how is it that he becomes the king's only champion? And what is it that makes Montrose ally with the king and stand by him through thick and thin? Yes. So this is the critical um, the critical turning point in Montrose. So um, as you say, first of all, he has, as it were, a bad coronation in the fact he doesn't go there. Secondly, he actually meets Charles I in 1636 on his way back from his travels. And that meeting actually goes very badly as well. Um, and then in 1637, um, rebellion breaks out in Scotland. So this is the prayer book rebellion, uh, when the Scots reject um, the new liturgy, which the king is trying to impose on them. And as Charlie has been saying, this has led uh, the, 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 uh, um, the riots, the, um, the uh, complaints are, are led by working women. I mean, it's really, really interesting, as a matter of fact. Um, but this rebellion gathers speed and is incredibly effective. Uh, and quite soon after the rejection of the prayer book, um, a rebel government is formed and the government is called the Tables. Uh, and the point of the Tables is to sideline the Privy Council. So Scotland is governed through a, pretty, pr a Privy Council, but the Tables takes over. Uh, and very easily, the uh, the rebels take charge of Scotland. Um, and in 1638, in February 1638, so those are events of 1637, in February 1638, a manifesto is published, and this is called the National Covenant, the fame, another famous historic document in Scottish history. And this is a, a description of why the, um, the, all these events have happened. Uh, the National Covenant says we want a true religion in our country, not uh, a, a religion which has been amended by the king's ideas. But if the king accepts our version of true religion, um, we are, of course, his loyal subjects. So Montrose, at this stage, to begin with, he stands back, but he quite quickly joins in uh, with the rebellion. He is a member of the tables. On the, He's one of the, 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 the representatives of the nobility in the tables. Um, he signs the National Covenant, uh, He's one of the first people to subscribe, uh, a rather dashing romantic signature, which you can still see. Um, and then in the wars which happen before uh, the outbreak of general war, so these are wars between Scotland and Charles I, called the Bishops' Wars uh, of 1639 and 1640, uh, Montrose is in the Covenanter army. He leads a covenant, very successfully leads a Covenanter army in the northeast of Scotland in the First Bishop's War and in the Second Bishop's War, he leads the Covenanter army across the border from uh, Scotland into England, crossing the River Tweed. He isn't the overall commander-in-chief, but he's a very important symbolic figure. So he's very much a rebel, a Covenanter, who is saying no to Charles I. But that changes. Uh, what happens is that the nature of the rebellion changes. So 
two, and there are two main events which swing uh, Montrose's uh, mind. The first is that someone emerges as the driving force uh, between, behind the rebellion, someone who's a bit invisible to begin with, but becomes more and more visible, and that is the Earl of Argyle, Archibald Campbell. So he's a bit like Montrose at this stage. Argyle is an earl. He will later be a marquis, but at the moment he's an earl. Argyle is a very rich, powerful noble, probably the richest noble in Scotland because his estates are absolutely uh, immense. Um, he is a very convinced Presbyterian Protestant, and he doesn't trust Charles I. Um, so it's natural that he would be a covenanter, but he goes too far. So in 1640, uh, what he does is he takes advice, Argyle takes advice from lawyers on what is the legal way to depose a king. The story gets out. Argyle's defense, and it's a pretty feeble defense, is that he wasn't asking for advice on how to depose Charles I. He was just asking for advice on how you depose kings generally, somehow or other. <laughs> so that's theoretical. Yeah. It's all—it's just a kind of game. Yeah. Um, so, but this is actually a very nasty episode for various reasons, as I go into it in, in, in the book. But it becomes clear that Argyle is driving things much further than the original protest, um, and Montrose just doesn't like that. And we'll come on maybe to talk a little bit about Argyle. But that's the first thing, is this advice on deposing a king. That's quite a different matter from saying we don't want a prayer book. The second thing which happens the following year, so this is in August of 1641, is a treaty assigned between Charles I and the Scots. This is called the Treaty of London. This is the formal end to the bishops' wars. And in the Treaty of London, Charles I accepts everything the covenanters are saying. So he completely retracts. He draw, he says, okay, no new prayer book, no new rules for the church. He'd also introduced new rules for the for the Kirk. But he says, no, no, it's fine. I, I withdraw those. And you don't have to have bishops in Scotland. So the king has become a listening king who wishes to live in peace with his Scottish people. And when the king does that, as far as Montrose is concerned, Charles I is playing the game and is now incumbent on the Scots to live in peace with their king. But he realizes that is not going to happen. So by now, Montrose thinks, OK, the balance has shifted. It is the king who is now in the right. And also what has also happened by this stage is that Montrose having been, as you might say, royally pissed off with Montrose before, um, realizes that this dashing, charismatic, gifted young man is not the convinced rebel that he thought he was and actually has real royalist sympathies. So the king also starts to reach out to Montrose. So that's the first stage of the sort of conversion, if you like, of Montrose yeah. into being a royalist. And then he later becomes, so this is 1640, 1641, and then he later is given a commission by the king to wage war in Scotland, which he does with extraordinary and utterly unexpected success. Uh, and that is the year when he's clearly the great champion of the Stuarts. Um, 
And he is the only such champion. No one else in Scotland is standing up in the way that Montrose does. And as a matter of fact, although uh, Charles I has got some pretty good people in his English army, no one in England um, has a track record anything close to Montrose's in Montrose's year of success. So that's how Montrose becomes the champion and really the only true champion uh, of the king. And of course, in Scotland, Montrose has lost everything. He has been forfeited by the Covenanters. Uh, he, all his possessions are taken. His title of nobility is taken. Um, his, he's excommunicated from the church. So it really is a kind of heroic stand. Gosh. So, and he, he's leading an army for the king in Scotland and, and fighting for the king. But he is, he's properly in the minority up there, isn't he? So let's, let's talk about his counterpart. We need to talk about Archie Campbell, um, who becomes first Marquis of Argyle. Why are they such fierce rivals? What, what's, What's the beef? Because it does seem that there's something personal going on here with these two. I mean, absolutely. So I think there is there's something both personal uh, and political. So on the personal side, uh, and of course, you do have to remember, there's a long tradition in Scotland of these grand, rich aristocrats taking a loathing to each other and uh, a kind of tribal warfare, as a matter of fact, a very long tradition uh, in Scotland at that time. The personal side is these are two very, very different characters. Um, they're not much different in age. Uh, uh, Campbell or Argyle um, is about five years older, I think, than Montrose, but quite close in age. Um, but the personal style is very different. So Montrose is a slight, athletic, glamorous, good-looking, attractive man with uh, a rather sort of, uh, and, and frankly, what the word we would now use of Montrose is we would say he had he had real cool. Um, he wasn't actually particularly flamboyant in his personal behavior, although he was a poet, and there's a number of the poems he wrote, which I, I put in my book. Um, um, but he was low-key, uh, undemanding, had great charm, um, and he is repeatedly accused, although there is no evidence, by the way, of um, having a, a, a number of, uh, of, uh, of lovers. This may or may not be true. There, is, there isn't any real evidence. And it's rather a conventional stuff. But you can convincingly accuse him of that. Um, he's a glamorous man. Um, uh, Argyle, by contrast, uh, has a, a cast in one eye. And, you know, you look in the portraits of Argyle, in vain for any signs of personal glamour. He was a very, very formidable politician. Um, uh, I actually have some sympathy with Argyle because I think he was right to mistrust Charles I, by the way. Um, but he was a cunning, not entirely honest uh, politician. And although he had a very low-key, understated manner also, was incredibly aggressive when he attacked. Um, so it was slightly like deceptive politician versus dashing cavalier. And that's, I think, the personal clash. Um, of course, politically, what happened is they found themselves on different sides uh, of the argument. And to be fair uh, to Montrose, 
it is Argyle who attacks Montrose. So in 1640, this is the year when uh, Argyle asks for the legal advice about deposing kings and so forth, um, Argyle uh, attacks with his own private army the cousins of Montrose, who are the Ogilvy family in uh, Angus. Uh, he destroys all their houses. He takes hostages of small children. The children, by the way, survive, but but the, the young Ogilvy children, uh, you know, under the age of six, by the way. Um, he takes a prisoner of the Earl of Athol, who is another cousin of Montrose's, and he tries to have Montrose indicted on charges of treason. So to be fair to Montrose, it is Argyle who attacks Montrose. That is a kind of political argument, but there is also clearly something personal. Yeah, and the book goes into great detail about these these two factions and, and their rivalry and also Montrose's military campaigns. Um, but our listeners are going to have to forgive us for jumping forward because there is so much to go through here. You're just going to have to read the book. Um, how far, How fair do you think it would be to say that a letter from Montrose may have scuppered the king's willingness to compromise at the talks in Uxbridge. So the talks in Uxbridge uh, were obviously talks in England. They were talks between Charles I uh, and the English Parliament, which took place at Uxbridge, uh, at the beginning of 1645. Um, and uh, what happened was the king thought maybe we should try to have a peaceful end to the English struggle um, and there were negotiations, uh, and then the king walked away from them. That's what actually happened, and the war continued. Um, meanwhile, in Scotland, Montrose uh, had run this dashing campaign in which uh, he arrived in Scotland in the summer of 1644, so six months, let's say, before the Uxbridge negotiations. Um, he almost miraculously raises an army. There's a whole story about that, which, of course, I go into. Um, and he immediately starts to fight battles. And he very quickly chalks up two victories. So they're called the Battle of Tipamur uh, and the Battle of Aberdeen. Um, so he turns up. No one expects him to turn up. He raises an army. No one expects him to raise an army. And he, and he fights and wins two battles. And no one expects him to do that either. Uh, so that's a good start. Uh, uh, it doesn't, in a way, answer any real questions, but it's a good dashing start. And the king, of course, knows about this. The king realises that this mission in Scotland is working quite well. Um, then you have the winter, the winter of 1644 to 1645, when, in the most unusual way, Montrose uh, wages a winter campaign um, against Argyll. So we were just talking about the Marquis of Argyll. Uh, and Montrose takes his army into Argyll's territories. and in what is frankly quite a cruel campaign, lays waste to them in the middle of winter and does so very, very successfully. Uh, and then Argyle naturally raises his own army to confront uh, Montrose and does so at the Battle of Inverlochy Castle in February. So it's a, it's a winter battle, February uh, 1645, um, and is trounced. So the third battle, Montrose, also wins. Montrose, by the way, fights in the battle. Argyle stays on a boat in the nearby sea lock to get away just in case. And in fact, he does have to get away as it so happens. So again, you see a personal difference between the two men. Um, after the Battle of Inverlochy Castle, uh, Montrose 
uh, writes a wonderful, eloquent letter to Charles I to explain what he's just done. Uh, he's very uh, generous to the men he has fought. He says they fought very well, uh, the enemy. They deserve to fight in the better cause. Um, and he's basically exuberantly confident that he's kind of conquered. He hasn't, in fact, conquered Scotland, but he sort of thinks he has just for <laughs> the time being. Um, and he said, look, this is what I'm doing in Scotland, King. Um, what you mustn't do is accept a peace in England. He, of course, knows about the negotiations in England. And he says, do not uh, make a peace with Parliament in England. They will make you a king of straw. This letter arrives with the king a few days before the king decides to call off the negotiations. Um, so it probably did help the king make that decision because he felt some, at least something was going well up in Scotland. However, on the whole, historians believe that Charles wouldn't have accepted the terms which uh, Parliament was proposing in any case. So it was a bit like, if you like, I would say that letter, the famous, eloquent, moving letter, is like the icing on the cake. That's that's what I think it was. Yeah. <laughs> so again, we're, we're jumping forward. We know that the king doesn't compromise. We know that there is a, a second, there's a, a second civil war. Fighting starts again, and Charles ends up losing his head. Well, he doesn't lose it. That would be really careless. Um, it's taken from him. Um, what it's, happened in it Scotland? It certainly goes, yes. <laughs> it, it, it goes, it goes one way or the other. What happened in Scotland after the regicide? They weren't very happy to have lost their king, were they? And what, what did Montreux so this, do? Yes, so this is very interesting. So there's two, two, there's, there's two things here. Um, first, what happens in Scotland? Um, so when we started chatting, uh, um, we talked about the... Um, medieval uh, concern with the independence of Scotland, which again you see in the 1630s that Scotland must be Scottish, not English, and so on and so forth. Um, and then you get uh, the English and the Scots, the opponents of the king in both countries, uh, work together um, against Charles I. That's what happens. But now that Charles I is killed, there's a clear divergence between England and Scotland. So what happens in England when the king's head is cut off is that England is declared to be a commonwealth. Uh, it's no longer a monarchy. It's not yet, by the way, the protectorate of Cromwell. That actually comes a bit later on. But it's a commonwealth. Uh, it's a republic governed by a committee. That's what they try at first in England. In Scotland, they have no interest in committees or commonwealths. They have this mystical, powerful, many centuries old belief in the importance of having a king. And they almost immediately declare the Prince of Wales, who is as Charles II, as their king. Um, so that is a very different uh, reaction to the destruction of Charles I. I will quickly say it's quite a complicated acceptance of Charles II. Uh, First of all, it's a bit provisional because they say he is our king as long as he sticks to our Presbyterian church system. But nonetheless, they say he is the king. Um, and the other thing, very interestingly, is they don't just proclaim him king of Scots. They proclaim him king of Great Britain, uh, Ireland, and uh, as a kind of uh, weirdly, but it's, a, it's an old tradition, as king of France also. 
So ever since Henry V, the kings of England have claimed to be king of France. That's where that comes from. But the point is, they say he's king of Great Britain. So actually, the Scots are saying he's not only king of us, the Scots, he's also king of you bastards, the English. <laughs> so it's all quite interesting. Anyway, and the subsequent history then goes on and is interesting for various ways. So that's what happens in Scotland. Now, for Montrose, what happens um, is he's very, very profoundly shocked by the king's death. Um, he feels that Charles I has been multiply betrayed and then his head is cut off. Um, we have an eyewitness account of how he reacts to the news. He collapses in a faint. Um, he is brought round. Uh, he then dis disappears into his private rooms uh, where he stays for three days. Uh, and when he comes out, he has decided that the sole purpose of his life is he is, by the way, on the continent of Europe at this stage, I should say. He is not in Scotland. Um, the sole purpose of his life is to avenge the king. And I actually think the death of Charles I makes him a bit mad. Uh, and I think he sort of continues being a bit mad almost until the end of his life, although in a very noble and impressive way. I mean, it really is a turning point for him. Gosh. I'm, again, I, I'm directing our listeners to the book to read all about this because this is, this is where, very much where Montrose's story is going to start to come to an end. Um, and the start of his legend as a romantic hero of the royalist cause really, really kicks off. Um, so he goes off, he goes off into exile, goes off to the continent, but he does come back to Scotland. Why does he come back to Scotland from, from royalist exile? And yes. what happened to him when he got back? Scotland. Yes, not only does he come back from exile, but you could say he comes back from a safe exile. He could have a glorious career in Europe. He could have stayed there. He's a very, very, very famous man, by the way, by now, because his chaplain, George Wishart, has written, literally written a bestseller about him. So he writes about uh, Montrose's uh, career, uh, what he did, how loyal he is to Charles I, and so forth. And the book uh, goes into multiple reprint editions all over Europe. So, so Montrose is the celebrity of the moment, but actually he doesn't accept any European jobs. He's offered a few. He, he, sorry, he does in fact accept one, but he never does it. Uh, and he comes back to Scotland, as you say, because his one uh, overriding driving mission now is to avenge the king. Um, he obtains a commission uh, from Charles II. So previously he had a commission from Charles I. Now he has a commission from Charles II. This means he can wage war legally. He needs the king's commission to be a legal uh, general in Scotland. He raises a, a really quite small army in Europe, crosses in stormy, wintry seas to the Orkneys, where he raises more men. And by this stage, he's got about 1,500 men under his uh, command. And then he comes down uh, onto the mainland with his army and starts traveling south to fight again, uh, with the ambition, of course, to raise uh, more troops, to recruit more once he's in the mainland of Scotland, uh, and to uh, revive the um, the civil war, uh, so the war on behalf this time of Charles II, um, against the Covenant of Government. Um, but it doesn't work. He is surprised by a cavalry troop, a relatively small cavalry troop, actually, um, in, at a place called Carbisdale, which is right in the south of Sutherland in Scotland. And because his army is very inexperienced, these very hard, tough Covenanter cavalry quite easily 
panic for men. There's quite severe fighting. Uh, Montrose fights. Uh, he is wounded uh, quite badly in the action, but he gets away. Um, he then travels, he then sheds anything in his, uh, uh, what he's wearing that could identify him as the Marcus of Montrose, including he's wearing the garter star. So he throws that away into the undergrowth. Um, and for two or three days, he walks across country with nothing to eat, uh, takes shelter at a place called Ardbreck Castle, but is betrayed by the Laird uh, of Ardbreck to the Covenanters, who then take him down to Edinburgh. Uh, and uh, uh, there, there is no trial, um, but there is some give and take between a committee of the Scottish Parliament uh, and Montrose, um, in which Montrose states his case, explains why he did what he did. But uh, it does him no good. They're determined to kill him. He is their great emblematic uh, enemy. Um, and on the 21st of May, 1650, uh, he is duly hanged uh, in Edinburgh. And that, as you say, is kind of, that's a sort of an end, which is also a beginning. Because with this dreadful, humiliating end, in which his own behavior is extraordinary, and just reading about his very final days, I think is uh, an extraordinary experience. We have many eyewitnesses who saw him. Um, uh, this is the time at which the legend of the kind of man he was and what he put first before his own personal interests really starts to take off. So he's already a famous man. He's, he's already become a celebrity. But now it's almost stratospheric uh, what this man did. He really, truly is the great hero. And uh, Archie Campbell, he's, uh, is he involved in seeing um, Montrose done to death? Well, to be fair to Archie Campbell, his wife is um, heavily pregnant at this time uh, and gives birth, I think, on the actual day that Montrose dies. So Archie does have other <laughs> things okay. on his mind. Right. However, <laughs> uh, and he's not part of the committee which uh, interrogates Montrose, but he does watch from a balcony as Montrose is paraded through the streets of Edinburgh and um, there is no doubt that Argyle wanted Montrose dead and doesn't seem to have had that much respect for him, interestingly. He thinks that Montrose was a godless man, um, which I don't think is true, uh, but that, that was the view Argyle took. He was a bit of a religious fanatic, I think, in some ways, Argyle. Gosh. Um, so... We're we're going to have to bring this to an end because I could talk to you all day, but I do need to ask you: Do you think that Charles II sold Montrose out? So there is um, uh, a theory that what Charles II did in this last year of Montrose's life was he used him as a kind of trade. What Charles II was doing: Charles II was. Uh, uh, in exile. Uh, he was either in Flanders, I think he was in Flanders, but he was either in Flanders or the Dutch Republic at this time. Uh, he also went to Paris and so forth. But in any case, he was um, in exile. Uh, obviously, he had no kingdom. Um, uh, the Scots had accepted him as king, but they hadn't really done the deal. So saying he was king was like a kind of grand statement, but they had to come to some kind of agreement between them. And what he wanted, what Charles II wanted, was having 
a partial acceptance from the Covenant government in Scotland. He wanted to cut a real proper deal with them so he could go to Scotland, he could be crowned king, and then he could raise a Scottish army and invade England and take back England. That was the king's plan. Um, and he put out feelers to the Covenanters, and in due course, he had negotiations with them. And in the end, uh, he came to an agreement with them, by the way. It didn't go particularly well for him, but he did do all of that. That's what happened. Um, but at the same time, he gave Montrose his commission to fight the Covenanters. And there is a theory that Charles II um, did this deliberately, kind of handing Montrose over to the Covenanters uh, as because he knew that if there was one thing they most ardently desired, it was the end of Montrose. So this would help him, is the theory, uh, win their support. I don't think that's what happened. What I think happened is you have to remember that Charles II was a very, very young man. So at the time his father died, he was 18 years old. Um, he was still uh, a teenager uh, at the time that uh, Montrose died. Um, and I think he was overconfident. I think he felt that Montrose was had such exceptional gifts and abilities that he could do anything, that Montrose could do anything. Um, and he thought that by sending Montrose into Scotland... Um, he would bring pressure on the Covenant uh, regime to come to make concessions to him, to Charles I. He wasn't trying to sacrifice uh, Montrose. He was trying to use him, which would be perfectly normal behavior, by the way, for a king. <laughs> that's, that's, that's what kings do. Um, so uh, I think he was naive. Um, and his naivety really was that he um, made all these plans completely plain and public. So everybody knew that he was negotiating with the Covenanters. Um, and the result of all of that was that if you knew that the king was negotiating with the Covenanters, the last thing you were going to do was sign up to Montrose's army. So Montrose wanted to recruit in Scotland, but you know, you know, the, the ground had been you know, swished away from beneath his feet by Charles II, but not on purpose. Um, I think it was sheer naivety uh, and political naivety and, and, and a bit of overconfidence and youthful kind of crassness. That's what I think it was. So I don't think he was betrayed in that sense. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming and telling us all about Marquis of Montrose. Um, our listeners can get hold of copies of The King's Only Champion. We'll pop it on our bookstore. And of course, um, it is available in other places. But if you buy it from us, we get a cut. Dominic gets a cut and uh, Amazon doesn't get a cut. So thank you so much for joining us today, Dominic. It's been brilliant to chat to you. No, that was good fun. No, thanks, Charlie. I really enjoyed it. Thanks. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section thank you so much for your continued support we really appreciate our listeners and supporters so make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book <laughs>